everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. It is the second part of the wood movement episode. This is episode 47, where I'm just taking your questions on wood movement. I've had a couple of weeks for people to submit questions, and boy, do I have a lot of them. This might end up being a little bit longer show because there are a lot of people who wrote in. Now, I've also had a lot of people who wrote in who had, you know, identical or very similar questions to other people, and I did my best to kind of conglomerate them together. Um, but, you know, as I expected, wood movement is still a very confusing thing to a lot of people. And once you really start breaking it down, it gets even more confusing. And the best way to tackle this is not with abstract theories and overall ideas, but in context. Because wood is an organic material, wood is going to do weird things. And in the end, we sometimes just have to throw our hands up and go, well, I don't know what's going to happen. And the solution is always going to be build with wood movement in mind. I know I said that a lot in the last episode, but you know what? Let's just jump into the questions. I do want to throw one little quick industry update in because I keep bringing up these um, uh, COVID-related price increases and slowdowns in shipping, and I figured um, let's just keep it going since we're obviously still mired in COVID. But one thing that strikes particularly near and dear to, to me and to um, the company I work for is the price of ePay has skyrocketed. It has gone up almost 33% uh, in the last like two weeks. Actually, I'd say in the last month, but uh, over the period of two weeks, it went up 33% and it is held during the last month. <clears throat> As a lot of the, our domestic hardwood prices continue to climb, we saw the perfect storm of supply and logistics issues hitting in Brazil. We have several major investigations going on into several land concessions, which, which is a very good thing. Don't get me wrong. We need this regulation and these investigations to happen to keep people honest down there. But that has also kind of tightened security, tightened checks, tightened regulation throughout the country, slowing down wood moving through the country. In addition, we're actually just seeing a huge spike in the demand, as we are seeing with with uh, domestic hardwoods, uh, both internationally and domestically, a huge spike for ePay. And we're coming into decking season. It is fast approaching. In fact, it's already here in some areas. And people are looking for probably one of the most popular decking species out there is ePay. Perfect Storm has brought this material skyrocketing up 33%. Here's the other thing and why I really wanted to bring this up. ePay has been introduced to the CITES convention twice now. And twice it has been shot down. When I say introduced to the CITES convention, every year there is a convention where CITES nations um, introduce potential species that need to be CITES listed, discuss species that are on CITES appendices and figure, you know, does it need to be taken off? Does it need to be advanced from Appendix 3 to Appendix 2 or God forbid Appendix 1? Or as I said, just taken off entirely. It's the ongoing review of CITES species. EPE has been introduced as a potential Appendix 2 species twice now and it has been voted down in the convention. Well, last year it was voted in for Appendix 2 again, but the convention never happened because of COVID. So it's kind of sort of still out there for vote. Whether it gets voted down or not, personally, the writing is on the wall that Ipe is going to become an Appendix 2 CITES species. Now, let me be clear. It is not, absolutely not, a CITES species. 
But man, at the rate at which it's being uh, traded and sold and imported and exported, it has to end up on Ascites Appendix 2. If not Appendix 2, certainly Appendix 3. Well, if that happens, I don't think the species can hold. With the price already being so high, now granted, Ipe goes up and all the other decking species around it kind of go up and kind of compensate. I don't think interest in the species is strong enough to withstand any greater price increase. And if it gets CITES listed, we can expect a 15 to 20% price increase on top of that just to start. Then availability is going to go down. It's going to drive the price up even further. There are just too many other products out there that do as good a job or pretty close to a job as ePay. Plus, dare I say it, I love wood, folks, but some of these engineered materials, they figured out the quirks. They figured out the little bugs and the problems, and they are getting really, really good. So I don't know. I fear for the future of ePay as a commercial species. I fear for the future of ePay as, as just a species in general. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens. CITES regulation could be a very, very good thing for the species, just like it's done really good things for the genuine mahogany market. Um, and the viability of the genuine mahogany tree, it's taken 10 years um, and we'll probably take another 10 before we really can, you know, breathe the sigh of relief and remove it from CITES. So it, it's probably a very, very good thing for ePay to get listed. But mark my words, folks, here it is, February of 2021. I expect to see ePay on the CITES list, if not this year, next year. Um, COVID is screwing up a lot of stuff as far as conventions and voting on things, but it's going to happen. Trust me on this. So enough of that. Let's get let's talk about wood movement, shall we? So um, both Adam and Brendan wrote in to me about uh, slabs. Um, basically, the well, let's just read. Um, let's read the, the questions here. Uh, I wanted to see if you can go into more detail uh, about why joined slabs tend to flex a little until they are secured to a metal base. Let's say each slab is 22 inches wide. Well, wide slabs eventually flatten out when secured properly to a metal base. Furthermore, if you decide to go the wooden leg route, are C channels necessary and what's your take on C channels? And then Brendan basically says, I have a question about the use of C channels on slab tables. With regard to wood movement, is this necessary overkill or just insurance in case the slabs move and want to cup? So here's the thing. First of all, Brendan, the reason that slabs uh, uh, flex or work with a metal base or flex a little, wood's going to always move, right? We've talked about that. A wider board has just got more movement. Since wood movement is a percentage game, you know, uh, 6% of, of an 8-inch wide board is less than 6% of a 22-inch wide board. The other thing about a slab is you're talking about the entire cross-section of a tree. And that cathedral line down the middle, assuming it's a flat sawn board, but even if it's not a flat sawn board, even if it's rift, the center of that board, really where the center of the tree would be, kind of acts like a hinge. Um, and the wood is going to want to cup around that hinge. Most slabs are going to be through sawn or plain sawn. It's not really a slab if it's a quarter piece. You can have a really wide quarter piece or a wide rift piece, but you don't really call it a slab. Slabs pretty much by definition are plain sawn, flat sawn, through sawn, bastard cut, whatever you want to call it. So that cathedral pattern is that invitation to cup. That's the area where the wood is kind of in, in its most in most flux 
transition, most movement, I guess. And all of the more stable corded and rift material flanking that center cathedral, well, they're holding steady while it's just cupping around the center. It's just going to cup. The wider the board, the more it's going to cut. If you ever buy a slab that is less than eight quarters an inch thick, first of all, I would say don't buy it. You know, unless it's been like vacuum dried or even radio frequency dried, I wouldn't touch it. And even then, I would expect something thinner than eight quarter to cup as it acclimates with your shop. The reason that most of these slabs are cut thicker is they just need more thickness, more beam strength to keep it from cupping. That's what the tree wants to do. And with a slab, you're talking about the whole cross section of a tree. So they will flex and, and, and what what Adam is saying is they flex until they're secured to a metal base. They're still flexing when they're attached to the metal base, but the metal base is restraining them and keeping them flat. The metal is strong enough and isn't moving that it is acting as that straight edge, and you're securing the, the slab down to the metal base, holding it flat, but ideally you've got slotted holes on that metal base, so the slab can still expand and contract, but now it's expanding and tra- contracting in a single geometric plane, a plane that equals that of the, the metal base. It's the same idea with putting a breadboard on the end of a table. You're holding it flat, but you're not restricting it from moving. So metal bases are a great idea when it comes to slabs. Going with a wooden base is not a bad idea. It's all about orienting the grain in that wooden base so that you are holding that slab flat. If you were to create a cross beam on a wooden base where the the, uh, grain was moving vertically. I don't know why you would do that. It would be short grain and really, really weak. The slab would overpower it and it would cup. Using a long grain junction on your your stretcher underneath the slab is still going to hold the thing flat. The key is slotted holes in the base to allow that slab to expand and contract. Now, C-channels are really the same idea as putting a metal base under your table. They are holding it flat and you've got elongated holes in the C-channel. As far as whether or not they're necessary or overkill, you know, there's always going to be a case why a a C-channel might be a good idea. The fact is you might have a design where there is zero support for the tabletop. The tabletop is floating in such a way that you really need to have the support and have it still be hidden. The problem I have with C-channels is they involve essentially inlay, Um, letting those channels into the bottom of the table is thinning out that section of the slab and and really exposing uh, interior wood that's going to require more moisture um, uh, evening out equalization. that thinner section is not going to have the same strength as the thicker stuff around it. You're, you're just asking for a little bit of trouble by letting those C channels into the bottom. When the fact is, if you just have a good strong base that you're building underneath the table, that operates the same way as a C channel. So the only reason I really say you would use a C channel is if you do not have a base, maybe you're making a table that is completely free floating. It's not even attached to the base. Maybe I've seen some designs where there is a base, but the table actually rests on like metal pins um, and just the weight of the slab and maybe a slight indentation for the metal pins keeps the, the slab from sliding back and forth. But the whole thing is not even attached. You need that slab to stay flat all on its own. 
fact of the matter is you'd be better off with some sort of veneer and a plywood substrate for that, but there will be times when you wanna use that natural slab top and you have no um, structure underneath it. That's when I would talk about inlaying something where you want that hidden, you don't wanna add to the thickness of it. Otherwise, I just don't think it's necessary. I do think it's overkill because there's so many other construction methods that can be used to hold it flat without going to the trouble or asking for the trouble of cutting a channel on the bottom, of setting this in place, thinning out that section where you've routed it in. Just there's there's lots of things that that kind of add variables to the mix that could cause problems down the down the uh, down the road. Okay. Uh, Don and Ryan both asked about finish and wood movement. Uh, let's just paraphrase here. I've heard that finishes will slow the moisture exchange and thus slow the wood movement. I'm helping a friend build a walnut countertop and cannot convince him to allow for wood movement in the construction. He's convinced that since he is putting epoxy on all sides, it won't move. Is there any chance that since finish slows the movement, it won't move enough to cause issues? Um, and the other part of this question is, do film finishes with strict wood movement at all? Will a large glue up potentially crack the film finish with movement? So um, slightly different questions, but in the same theme here. So yes, wood's going to move when you put finish on it. Yes, finish will slow down the moisture exchange. It's putting a vapor barrier there that takes longer to, to penetrate. So the key with wood movement and moisture is, you know, climate changes, I shouldn't even say climate changes, temperature and humidity changes are relatively short-lived. Climate changes are long-lived, but we're talking about in your house, we're talking about throughout the day as the sun comes up, the rain passes through, snowstorm passes through, sun goes down, whatever. Those are relatively short-term. And a wood that's got a vapor barrier on it, like a finish, won't really pick up the moisture. By the time the moisture kind of makes it through the finish, the uh, storm front or whatever it is has passed, and now the moisture wants to actually escape. In order to come into equilibrium, it's moving its way back out of the wood, or it just takes some time to penetrate through. So a wood with a vapor barrier on it doesn't really notice the relatively short-term moisture and temperature changes that happen day to day. Seasonally, as you're moving into, you know, running the heater all the time, certainly the wood will move as it comes into equilibrium with a warmer, drier house, but it does so slowly enough that you're not really introducing a lot of stress on the wood. Now, it's still going to move the same amount from point A to point B, from the depth of summer when it's, you know, hot and, and, and moist to the depth of winter when it's warm and dry or very cold and dry. You know, obviously the heater keeps it warm, but very, very dry. Very big change in relative humidity. That point A to point B, if your wood moves 6% during that time, it's going to move 6% whether there's a finish on it or not. It's just going to take longer to move that full 6%. It's going to move slower because of the finish and because of the vapor barrier. Now, epoxy is a pretty heavy-duty finish. And, you know, it, it may restrict movement. No, I'm pretty certain it restricts movement to a greater degree than, like, six coats of a wiping varnish because epoxy is very, very thick. And... Certainly, if you want a close to wood finish, well, then epoxy is not your option. If you want a bar top finish that's an epoxy top, yes, it is going to re 
ridiculously slow down the moisture exchange. It won't stop the wood movement though. That wood is still going to move. And unless you plan to have that countertop, you know, just for one season and then you're gonna throw it out, it's something you need to think about. You need to account for the fact that that wood is going to move. More importantly, you need to build your cabinet base in such a way to allow that countertop to move. Just because you're putting finish on it doesn't mean that you're freezing it in place and it won't move. It's just going to move really, really slowly, which is a very good thing with a thick, heavy slab because it'll prevent the unevenness that occurs with the middle not drying out at all and the edges and the ends drying out faster. So that, that epoxy will be really good in helping to keep it stable, helping to keep it flat, but it is absolutely not going to stop the wood movement. So let's look at the other side of this coin. Does wood movement affect the finish like in a negative way? <clears throat> this will depend upon the finish. The um, Most of the wood finishes are soft enough that they will stretch with wood movement. And this is why you don't see, you know, a large dining room table with finish defects because say that table expanded an inch. Um, the, the finish itself is stretching and moving with that tabletop. Now a really, really hard, brittle finish, now that could experience some cracking and could cause problems. But even then, if you are buying a wood finish or you're mixing up a finish for wood, the resins and the things in that, in that finish are formulated with the idea that the wood is going to move. If you were using a finish that was like an automotive finish and maybe had ceramic elements in it and is going to be super, super durable, well, that may cause problems because that was not formulated for the substrate to move underneath it. Now, I'm certainly no finish scientist. Is that a, is that a thing, a finishing scientist? I'm, I'm kind of making this up as I go along, but just take a little bit of varnish and uh, let it dry in the bottom of, say you're using a, you know, a, a Dixie cup or a Tupperware uh, something, you've got your finish in it, and you let that last little bit of finish dry. Well, peel that out of the bottom and you'll see how pliable, how flexible that dried up finish is. And you're probably gonna have a, a much, much thicker, that section that was left in the bottom of that cup is gonna be much, much thicker than the layer that was left on your wood. And you can see just how rubbery it is. Now do the same thing with lacquer, and lacquer will be more brittle, but it's still gonna have some flexibility to it. Shellac is gonna be more flexible than lacquer, but probably a little bit more brittle than like uh, a typical varnish. The different finishes are going to look a little bit different. Even epoxy has some pliability, some elasticity to it that allows that flexion as the wood moves. So long story short, I wouldn't worry about it unless you're using something that is specifically not a wood finish, not formulated for use on wood, that could be a problem. And generally those are going to be applied in ways that are not commercially available to the average home woodworker. Um, they require a lot more setup and a lot more specialization in the tooling to apply those things. And usually they're multi-step and they involve all kinds of fun chemical reactions and things like that. Moving on, <clears throat> got a question here from Tim about um, wood movement from the lumber yard back to your shop. So um, <clears throat> I have a question about buying lumber and having it milled before taking it home. Doesn't this break the rule of acclimating it to my workshop for a couple of weeks? 
I will be building a, a Walnut Peninsula for upcoming kitchen remodel and it will measure 42 inches by 115 inches. With boards that long, I don't want to have to mill them at home. I was thinking of buying the lumber and getting it milled at the hardwood dealer and then taking them home. Um, and, and this is local. He's going to buy it from a dealer in Denver and then take them home to Colorado Springs. So those who don't know, it's about 70 miles, depending on where you are in the Springs, where you are in Denver. We'll just say 80 miles and about 1,000 feet of altitude, maybe a lot higher than that, depending on which part of the Springs you're going to. So it's a local change. It's not that big of a deal. Um, his shop is in the garage. I only turn on my heater when I'm working in there. Uh, I imagine my garage is similar to the temperatures at the, at the hardwood dealer, their storage areas. The humidity between Denver and Colorado Springs isn't that different, both really, really dry. Um, I live about 2,000 feet higher than the lumber yard, if that makes a difference. Um, am I missing something? Will my peninsula top turn into potato chip if I get it milled and glue it up in the same day? Um, I always see contractor types loading pre-milled lumber into the trucks and trailers and think it will save me time and hassle, but I am worried. Um, Tim, don't worry about it. Uh, first of all, the change that you're talking about, you know, if you were maybe moving across the country, you know, moving that slab across the country, maybe, but even then it's going to be acclimating during that drive. So unless you've figured out a way to teleport from Denver to Massachusetts, <laughs> there's going to be a substantial amount of time passed as you travel that probably 2,500 miles. Um, I've never driven from Denver to Massachusetts. I've driven from Denver to Maryland, and that was 1,974 miles, I think. One road. <laughs> get on 70, head east, get off in Baltimore. It's a fun drive. You should do it sometime. But even then, you're talking about like a day, you know, if you really drop the hammer. There's acclimatization that's going on there. The other thing is, is I think the whole idea of acclimating it in your shop for two weeks is really overstated. If you've bought kiln dried material, that stuff is pretty stable and its moisture content is already low. Plus you're in the Rockies where it's already very dry. You're not going to see that much of a moisture change. And as you said, you're un insulated, unheated garage is going to be similar to the yard um, at the hardwood dealer. So I don't think it's going to be an issue at all. And I don't think it's something you need to overthink because there's such a small uh, change going on. But here's the other thing. Do you plan to build this peninsula countertop in five minutes? No, you're going to do some milling. Um, it'll be milled to the yard. You'll bring it back to your shop and you'll start joining it together. In fact, I would actually recommend that you go ahead and glue it up when you get it home. Um, some more precise joined elements, like if you're using a tongue and groove joinery or maybe you were joining it with dominoes or something, any movement that you see could cause that domino joint to go out of alignment across the thickness. The tongue and groove could actually shrink up on you and you'd have difficulty fitting it over 115 inch length. So most of the time when you're talking about joining things together into like a wider tabletop, I say go for it. Um, in fact, I don't even bother to flatten the individual boards of a tabletop. I would rather glue it together and flatten it all as one slab. Because really, you know, if you flatten, say you've got a tabletop in three pieces, you flatten each of the three pieces, then you glue it up. Even if that glue up is like dead nuts straight on, you're still going to go up and do some flattening, do some cleanup along those glue lines. So the way I put it is why bother flattening, especially in my case where I'm flattening with, with hand planes, why am I going to hand plane a board twice? I might as well glue it up and then hand plane the entire thing flat. Any movement that occurs during that glue up is eliminated when I flatten it 
one time. So there is a lot of merit to these contractors you see picking up pre-milled lumber because A, they're probably on a job site somewhere. They don't have a joiner and planer. Maybe they have a planer, but a lot of times they don't. They're taking it right to install. So you might as well get the hardwood dealer to go ahead and mill it for you. Just not that much time. Now, if you got it milled at the hardwood dealer and... No, I was going to say, and then you had like a massive rainstorm and the, the wood got really, really wet. Even then I would probably still glue it up and let it acclimate as one because what are you doing? You've got that long grain to long grain glue joint plus 115 inches long. You've got 115 inches of glue service and that is going to be, um, well, in this case, the same species all along that glue joint in the same movement direction. You're not creating a cross grain junction or anything like that. The wood is just gonna to continue to move across that glue joint like it's not even there. So there's really nothing you need to worry about in this. And this is a very long-winded answer to this to just say, no, um, I would not worry about that. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, I think that putting it in your shop and letting it sit for two weeks, is kind of not necessary. Um, unless you're using like air dried or green material you know, I bring stuff in from my lumber shed into my garage shop and it usually ends up sitting for a couple of days only because I just don't get to it <laughs> for then uh, for that long. So yeah, I think that whole letting it sit for two weeks is, is overstated. It all kind of depends on what you plan to do with it, but uh, I don't know. I think more often than not, that's someone who's just afraid of wood movement or more importantly, it's it's the typical weekend woodworker who's kind of twiddling their thumbs and afraid to get started because they might ruin that expensive lumber they just bought. So they put it off and say, oh, it needs to sit for two weeks. So I can't touch it for two weeks. That's really what happens more than anything. So here's an interesting question from Jeff uh, about wood movement as it relates to instruments. So um, it's a little bit longer here, but uh, Jeff is a luthier. I am not a luthier, but I think this brings up an interesting perspective. Um, uh, Jeff says, I've been working in the musical instrument industry for the past 19 years and currently do repairs and restorations, mainly on acoustic guitars. I'm also in the Southwest desert. It's not an exaggeration to say that wood movement is part of my daily life. Among guitar players, some understand this, but most still need convincing. Usually the argument goes, I spent X dollars on this, it shouldn't need to be humidified, <laughs> as though price had anything to do with laws of physics. Wood movement gets blamed on finishing, lack of wood, quote, seasoning, quote, cheap Chinese woods, air-dried versus kiln-dried, and a host of other things. An instrument can have some ability to move built into it, but it isn't like you can have a guitar with tongue and groove top and back sets to give full movement. The fact is I've taken 19th century instruments with a giant crack in it, humidify it, and watch the crack gracefully close up, ready to be glued just like any new guitar. Old guitars that had hair-dried woods, selections and species that modern luthiers can only dream about working with, and having an additional century or so to sit around and stabilize, uh, these, are, these are the woods that just still cracked. Another point is, I can guarantee that a guitar built from green wood wouldn't even make it out of the factory. It would self-destruct before it got through the finishing, assembly, and string-up process. End of my rant. So my question is, while wood always moves regardless of age, I have noticed different behaviors based on age. First, when an instrument is very dry for an extended period of time, guitars are typically manufactured between 45 and 50% relative humidity. That tends to get stuck there. It's a term we have on our shop called permasink because the tops and backs tend to sink into the instrument's sides when dry. 
They like to stay there even if overhumidified, in which point they are both sunken and bubbled up at the same time, depending on where the wood where on the wood you look. I've tried many things to compel them to return to the original shape, but I've only ever gotten temporary solutions. They end up having a quote new normal after being too dry for too long. I suspect part of this is because the cold creep in the bracing, linings around the neck and tail blocks. Type Bond Original is the most common glue in guitar building these days, if that helps, but that doesn't explain it all because it seems to be even more common in lightly braced instruments than heavily braced ones. I have also noticed that while all wood will move from point A to point B when changing humidity levels, the amount of time to get there on average changes with age. For example, if I have a brand new guitar and a 40-year-old guitar and leave them both out on stands in dry weather, the brand new one will show dry weather symptoms before the old one, even though both will eventually dry out given enough time. The only explanation I can think of is that the surfaces inside the guitar, no finish of any kind applied, are freshly cut, sanded in one and very old in the other. But I would love to hear if you have any theories on this. Thanks for your time and your hard work, Jeff. So again, that was a very long um, uh, email and really the question was right there at the end. I could have skipped to that, but I thought there was some pretty interesting stuff hidden in this. If you are interested in building guitars at all, rewind this and listen to that again, because there's, here's somebody with essentially 20 years in the industry that has really seen a lot. And, you know, he answers some of his questions with his own theories. And I believe he's right in many times, but there's just some really, really good information wrapped up into this. So, uh, thank you for that, uh, Jeff. Very, very cool. The real question here is, does wood move less the older it gets? And, and what could cause that? The issue with guitars especially is you're dealing with very thin materials. Um, and yes, there is some bracing in place, but even the bracing is pretty thin. So what you find is the wood itself is going to be more um, prone to passing wood movement. You know, the the... The good news is, is because it is so thin, it's moving more homogeneously. You're not going to have that gooey center that's going to stay nice and moist, um, and it doesn't really notice the change in, in relative humidity. The thinner pieces are going to uniformly change, but they're also going to change more readily because it doesn't take that much moisture to warp, you know, a thin piece of wood. There's not enough strength in the wood itself to hold itself rigid. Same reason you can take, you know, a quarter inch stick of something and bend it relatively easy and try to do the same thing with a one inch stick and it's not going to bend very well. Um, you're dealing with very thin pieces here and the bracing can help to some extent, but there isn't enough like in between the bracing, the wood is so thin that it's still going to want to flex and move as the humidity changes. But Here's the other aspect. As that flexion occurs, there is a bit of setting. You're stretching those fibers as it moves. And in the case of this permasink he talks about where it sinks into uh, the purfling on the side or, or, or round uh, bracing, you're essentially creating a bit of memory. So do this. Pull out your wallet or your purse. Pull out a credit card or get one of those... Um, like frequent shopper cards that you're supposed to put in your keychain, but you'd never actually use because people just ask for your phone number now. Plastic credit card type thing. Bend it in half. Now bend it in half the other direction and then bend it back the other way. 
what you're seeing in the middle of that credit card is kind of a white line as that plastic is stretched. If you keep doing that, it's gonna become very brittle and that card's gonna snap in half. But here's the other thing, bend it one time and just let it go. And you'll see that it keeps that bend and it will slowly start to open back up again, but it will never actually go all the way back to straight. This is similar to what's happening is as that wood sinks into its surroundings, because you're dealing with a cross grain situation here, as it sinks into its surroundings, because of that wood movement change, because of the moisture, there is a bit of stretching going on in the fibers themselves. And that stretching will always be there. Um, some of that elasticity will come back. Some of that is dependent upon the species and things like the modulus of rupture and the modulus of elasticity. But you can have a really, really high stiffness on a wood. And when you cut it down really, really thin, like you would for a back or front set in your guitar, you lose a lot of that stiffness just because there's so little fiber left. So you're getting that stretching of the fibers that's always going to remain a little bit there. The other question is, does wood move more or less the older it gets? And I think that probably at the heart, Jeff, the, you answered your own question with the fact that those unfinished surfaces on the inside have just had a long time, the older the instrument is, to just come into equilibrium. And, and they're, they're not continuing to adjust. But there's also that movement and um, contraction that occurs. There is that stretching that happens again. Um, as enough of that stretching occurs, the wood just becomes more pliable and it's just not going to react as much. As the moisture changes, instead of the wood moving a huge amount, it's actually held in place by some of the bracing and it's allowed to just be more stretchy. But it also depends upon the species. The species you use can have more resins in it, which over time will harden. Over time, they will chemically react with oxygen the same process that changes the color, if you go back and listen to my episode about things all woods do, as the chromophores break down and the color changes and those chemical reactions occur, there is some hardening of those resins. So a lot of tone woods are heavily resinous woods. Um, and as that resin hardens, or those tropical woods that you're using, as that hardens, the wood itself, its properties change. So it's not moving as much. It is more rigid. It is less prone to reacting to the moisture around it because it's just got more stiffness built into it. Take uh, old heart pine flooring boards that have been around for 300 years. Those suckers are hard. Well, what is heart pine? It's an incredibly resinous wood. It's one of the reasons we've got that beautiful golden color to it. That resin just continues to harden and harden and harden over the years. And heart pine ends up being reclaimed heart pine ends up being more stable than freshly cut, properly kiln dried heart pine, just because of the fact that that resin has had time to mature and to harden and to essentially set over the centuries. The same thing's going to happen with a musical instrument. The wood itself actually could be more prone to cracking, like you said, with this 19th century instrument, because the rigidity of it has gone up. But that's also what creates some of the most amazing instruments in the world. You know, hundreds of years of, I don't want to call it petrification, but I suppose if it goes long enough, you know, out in the elements, wood is the fibers of the wood are replaced with silica, and that's how you get petrified rock. It's not the same process, and someone, if I say that, someone's going to write and tell me I'm wrong, but think of it as the same process. 
that's going to harden the wood, which acoustically is going to change things pretty dramatically, which is why you can put, you know, a beautiful Stradivarius violin next to a currently manufactured violin. You will not get the same sound no matter what kind of strings you put on it or how you tune that thing. These instruments are constantly moving. Otherwise, we would never have to tune them. You tune them once and you're good to go, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work that way. I'm, I'm thinking back to a, a concert I did in Estes Park, Colorado, at the Gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park. As a storm moved through, this was a, an early music concert, so these strings were not modern cellos and violins, but they were viola da gambas and things like that using gut strings. And they were going out of tune halfway through a 15-minute movement, you know, and we had to actually stop between movements and retune because the, uh, the, the weather changed, and that was enough to, to cause things to go out of tune. So, yeah, uh, excellent, excellent question, Jeff. There's, there's a couple of things built in there. That permissing thing is particularly interesting, um, but also the fact that older woods do become more stable due to that hardening of resin. So, Brendan says, um, I was recently commissioned to build a dining table with a leaf for a family member. It's a pretty simple design. However, I do have a question about breadboard ends. Because the table is split in the center to allow it to open, will putting a breadboard end on the ends cause an issue? I'm concerned that even with a correctly made breadboard, there could be a problem because the center seam will not have the breadboard. So visualize this. You've got a table and a breadboard on each end, but in the middle of that table, you've got a, 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 a cut to allow the two ends to spread apart along the long axis and a leaf to drop into the middle. So obviously, well, I suppose you could put a breadboard on that center seam, but it would look weird, right? So moreover, the leaf that goes in can't have breadboards on it either. You ideally want that leaf to have a nice grain and color match, if not even from the same board, so that seamlessly the grain flows across the leaf. The solution here, Brendan, is the structure under which that table, under which that table exists. That's I was trying to reuse proper grammar and just ended up with very bad grammar there. The structure underneath it is going to hold that flat. So you could use breadboards on the end, but you'd be doing that as an aesthetic choice and not as a wood movement restriction choice. The structure that you have to build just to support a loose leaf table and to allow the table to slide out should be robust enough and rigid enough to allow that sliding without things slipping around. Same reason you don't want a loose drawer in a cabinet or it'll bind as you try to pull it out because it's slipping and sliding all over the place. The, the runners that allow those two ends of the table to slide apart are going to provide the rigidity to hold that tabletop flat. So it all lies in the base. Now, you also need to build the base to allow the expansion and contraction to happen. But here again, you are restraining the movement, not restricting the movement. Restricting it means you're freezing it in one position and it won't expand and contract. Restraining means you're screwing it down to this rigid base, this structural sound base that holds it flat in one geometric plane, but it does not prevent it from expanding and contracting tangentially with seasonal movement. The problem you may run into is with the leaf itself. So the rest of the table is anchored to that rigid structure, that nice sound structure. The leaf is going to be stored in the cupboard under the stairs with Harry Potter. And that's going to have no structure to it at all. What you'll find with a lot of table leaves is they have bracing underneath it. Now, that bracing also allows it to drop into some kind of structure underneath it and register it in place. 
but the bracing kind of acts like the breadboard or like the C channels we talked about before, except I wouldn't inlay it into this. It just acts as like a batten underneath. Now that batten is probably attached with slotted holes to allow expansion and contraction, but it will restrain that leaf. So here again, I wouldn't worry about omitting the breadboards in the center seam, but I would pay particular attention to the leaf itself. Because if that leaf is just sitting there as a board under in the cupboard under the stairs, it is going to cup on you over the years. You can wrap it in moving blankets and protect it and coat it in epoxy if you want, but it will still end up cupping on you. And when you drop that into the center, it's not going to line up. So pay attention to the leaf, not so much the table itself. Because the leaf, yeah, it's not going to have that structure all the time. Next, um, Andrew wants to know why do species move differently? <clears throat> I built a table out of some birch slabs I milled up on a Woodweiser a few years ago. After letting them air dry to about 10%, I made the table, he lives in a very dry area, um, I made the table with uh, breadboard ends. Knowing it was winter and my shop was a little drier than my house, I left the breadboards proud by about an eighth of an inch, thinking it would be plenty over a 24-inch span from the center of the table. Since then, the table has expanded to almost an eighth over the length of the breadboards. So that's a quarter inch per side or almost a half inch of movement over 48 inches. After that, I discovered that birch is known as a species that moves a lot. Absolutely. So my question is, why do some species move more than others? Um, I can look at the wood database and look at the numbers and see which are movement prone and which are not, but I'm curious about the why. The answer is, it's an organic material. Do you... Um, can you run a mile uh, as fast as a Kenyan? Technically, you're the same species, right? Or are you? I don't know. <laughs> I just said that and realized I may not know what I'm talking about. Are we the same species? Yes. Yes. We're all homo sapiens, right? Yeah. Who knows? Anyway, um, can you run as mile as fast as I am? Moreover, when you get up in the morning, do your are your knees stiff and hurt uh, as compared to, say, your 12-year-old son? To, are his knees stiff when he gets out of bed? Absolutely not. But you're the same species, right? The answer is we're all different. We're all organic. We're all going to have different elements of our structure. Um, we may have, maybe you've got an old injury. I know that uh, when it rains, my ankle hurts because I've got three pins in my ankle from an old rock climbing accident. We're all different in that respect. Our structure is different. Our blood chemistry is different. Our muscle tone is different. Our diets are different. Trees have different diets. A tree that's on the side of a hill is going to have a different muscular or skeletal structure than a tree that's in the open plains because that tree on the hill is constantly fighting gravity. A tree in a high wind area is going to have a different musculature and a different skeletal system than a tree in an open prairie. Moreover, a tree in an open prairie without any wind is going to have a different structure of a tree without any wind in a forest because the tree in the forest doesn't get as much light or has to share resources with the trees around it than it does the tree in the open prairie. This is going to change how tight the, the, the growth rings are. It's going to change the chemical comp composition of the tree itself. How much sugar is in the material that's coming out from the soil? What is the soil chemistry? Um, there is a, a story of a white oak uh, a guy who bought a bunch of white oak from a mill in, in Washington, the state of Washington, and uh, had been working with white oak all his life, and this stuff was just killing him. It was tearing up his blades. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't work with it. Well, it was because the trees, the white oak trees that he came from, happened to be on a hillside downwind of Mount St. Helens when it erupted. And those trees were impregnated with pumice and um, igneous rock. 
making them essentially rock more than tree. Still white oak. So within the same species, you're going to see wood movement differently because of the structure, because of the resins, because of the unique chemical composition, not only of the species, but of that particular tree. So I hate to tell you this, Andrew. Yes, birch moves a lot, but that one birch board that you used for that table, if you went and built that table again with more birch, you might find that it moves differently. It's just the way it is. It's the beauty of wood. It's an organic species. And all of the thousand and one variables that go into a tree as it grows is what makes it move the way it does. The wood movement numbers you see on these tables are averages, averaging multiple species, multiple tests, and have come down to a general average. The fact of the matter is there's not a dramatic difference from one species to another. It could be from you know species X to species Y over you know, one, one extreme to another. But Trees that grow in the same climates, they're all going to move differently, but they're going to move a lot less differently than a tree that grows in an entirely different climate. So a tree growing in a temperate zone or a boreal forest is going to move very similar to the other trees in the boreal forest or the other trees in a temperate zone, but move very differently compared to a tree in a tropical area. Moreover, you can buy ipe. I brought up ipe at the beginning of this. Ipe is grown all across Brazil. Hell, it's grown all across South America. You can buy ipe from southern Brazil that looks and behaves entirely differently from ipe bought in northern Brazil because Brazil is a big country and there's a lot of mountains in the northern part and not so many mountains in the southern part. Totally different soil chemistry, totally different climate, totally different everything that makes that tree or that particular board behave differently. So with that being said, of course, different species move differently because they're going to be even more different than a birch tree on the side of a hill and a birch tree in, a, in an open plain. That was a fun question. It's a good question. It's something a lot of people don't actually think about. So Doug has a question based on um, inside or outside locations of his wood. He says, do we have to be worried uh, about or <laughs> as worried about wood movement if we are using thermally modified wood? Um, not really. Thermally modified wood is almost not wood anymore. Um, it's baked to such a high temperature that there's crystallization that's occurred within the cell walls that essentially it doesn't move at all. So no, if you're using thermally modified wood, I, I don't, I wouldn't really worry about it. Now building with normal construction techniques um, you're accounting for way more movement that you will have with, with thermally modified. I don't think I could bring myself probably just out of habit to completely ignore wood movement with thermally modified wood, but I'd probably be okay. Uh, and that is why we have things like thermally modified wood. Not only are they more resistant to like flames and moisture, but they basically don't move. They're kind of like plywood in that respect. Um, he goes on to say, I'm assuming if we were building outdoor type furniture that will be outside year round, we would need to take wood movement more into consideration than being in a climate controlled home. Yes, absolutely. Now, granted, this will depend upon your climate. You know, do you have dramatic swings in climate or is it pretty much the same all year round? There's not a lot of places that can say it's the same all year round, maybe Hawaii, but even then Hawaii is huge, high humidity, um, very high humidity. Tropical areas is going to be pretty much the same all year round. The temperate areas, you're going to see wider concerns. But should you be more concerned about wood movement? No. You should always be concerned about wood movement, unless I suppose it's torrified or thermally modified wood. You should always be concerned. You shouldn't be building, I'm going to build this so that there's less wood movement, and I'm going to build this to allow for more wood movement. Just always build to allow for wood movement. Always. 
It does not matter. If you're building to allow for wood movement, then you're okay. You know, why would you build to allow for less wood movement? You're just asking for trouble at that point. Moreover, the amount of wood movement isn't going to be that dramatically different for a piece that sits outside all year around than a piece that would be inside. Yes, there's going to be less moisture swing inside, so there's less delta. There'll be more delta for the piece that's outside, but it's still the same movement amounts more than likely. So always be concerned about wood movement, and you don't have to worry whether it's inside all year round or in or, or outside all year round. It's the same thing. Um, but he goes on to say, do we need to take home placement into consideration? If you're building something for the bedroom versus the bathroom versus the kitchen versus the living room with a fireplace, this is a particularly good point because there's always going to be more moisture in the bathroom. There's going to be less moisture in a room with the fireplace. But are you going to have the fireplace on all the time? I don't know. But that's the real issue because the fireplace isn't on all the time. The fireplace is on for shorter periods of time. It's very hot and very dry and wood sitting right in front of it is going to go to 0% moisture probably very, very quickly. So that is something to think about. In a bathroom, I don't think you're going to have too many issues because the issue there is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of moisture. The finish acting as a vapor barrier is going to retard the wood movement enough that it's not something you need to worry about, you know, unless you're taking really long hot showers, in which case you will probably run out of hot water and steam before you have to worry about the wood movement. Um, you know, the, the bathroom is not going to stay damp all the time. If it is, you've got a mildew problem, and that's another issue to think about. The kitchen, likewise, it'll get hot and steamy maybe for a little while, but then it's going to dry out like the rest of the house. Same thing with the fireplace. It's going to get really hot really fast, but then it's going to cool down when the fire is not burning anymore. The problem with the fireplace is that it's it's such an extreme. If you had a piece of furniture sitting directly in front of the fireplace, that may cause issues, and you would need to really think about you know, where are my potential movement points? Where's my ingrain? And where could I potentially check and cause problems? But in the end, back to one of the first questions about vapor barriers and finish, that's going to help ameliorate, even out that wood movement, those dramatic swings over short periods of time to the point where you can almost ignore it because it's over such a short period of time. Um, he does go on to say there are some online woodworkers. <laughs> I don't know if that's a... Is that a qualifier or a discreditor if you're an online woodworker who says they don't worry about wood movement since the pieces will be in a house? Living in the South, I don't see how you can look at, at movement, how you can look at movement if you're building furniture. So yes, you can say it's relatively constant, but is it though? Like how many of you have had a door stick part of the year and then the door move easily the rest of the year? Or maybe it doesn't even stick. Maybe it just it closes a little bit snug, snugglier, snugger in the summer than it does in the winter. There's still temperature and humidity changes happening. You may t keep a, you know, a, a same uh, relative humidity number in the house all year round, but the temperature is going to change. And this is why it's called relative humidity. The moisture, the water vapor in the air at 20 degrees is different than the water vapor in the air at 70 degrees, even though the relative humidity may still be measuring 20%. 20% 20 at 20 degrees, 20% at 70 degrees, there's more water vapor in the air at 70 degrees at 20% than there is 20 degrees at 20%. So there is still a change. 
you can climate control the heck out of your house and you're still going to see changes. You're going to see changes when the sun comes through the window, you know, or a storm passes through. It's in a house, yes. So the swings are not quite as wide, but back to the beginning of this question, it's not like I'm going to build a piece of furniture to account for less movement because it's going here and account for more movement is going to go there. You account for the maximum amount of movement to cover all your bases. Otherwise, you're just asking for trouble. Good question. So Joe wants to know about veneer. He says, I'm looking for some advice regarding panels I'm planning on veneering. I'm in the process of planning my hand tool cabinet and I have some really nice curly cherry veneer that I was hoping to use. The main case will be dovetailed and I'd like to use solid cherry with my commercial cherry veneer, which is 145th of an inch thick. I'd say that most of my solid stock is flat sawn, so my concern is wood movement. The panels for the main case will be approximately 11 inches wide by 42 inches long. The panels for the, are the my shop is conditioned year round and my stock has been very well acclimated. It's currently around 7% holding. Alternatively, I thought maybe I could band some Baltic birch with cherry and then veneer over that. This way I can still cut my pins and tails out of solid wood. Yeah, um, well, here's the thing. That thin veneer is gonna do pretty much whatever the wood underneath it is gonna do. There's not enough strength in that veneer to really deflect or cause any problems. So this, you don't have to worry about that. What we're really worried about is will that veneer possibly split um, as the wood underneath expands? You wanna use a good veneer glue. Um, that glue is gonna have enough flexibility in it to allow movement underneath the glue. So you're not gonna see any splitting. I have seen veneer split in museum pieces. Um, you know, uh, Williamsburg Museum, the Smithsonian, a couple times you'll see a crack in the veneer. That, more than anything, I think is an indication of when the piece was actually made. Um, the piece was made in the 1800s, there was no kiln drying. You know, so it was not dried to a such a low moisture content, but also did not have the cell walls hardened, which happens in a kiln. It was air dried, so it was spongier. Um, and there was more movement. There's just more movement underneath that veneer. With a modern kiln dried wood and a commercial veneer, I'm not saying ignore it completely, but get a veneer glue. You know, technically, yes, you could veneer with type on two or type on one, but go get a good cold press veneer glue or if you're using a vacuum bag, look into vacuum bag veneer glues. Anywhere you, you're, you're buying your veneer is probably also gonna have glue. If you choose a veneer glue, it's formulated to, for creep, to allow that type of thing. Some veneer glues are formulated for less creep, and those are specific instances there. But this is something where um, I think you're just asking for more work to band some Baltic birch so that you can cut your dovetails. First of all, you can cut dovetails into plywood. It's just not as pretty. I would go with the cherry. Um, unless there's something special about the cherry that you want to save it for something else, go with the cherry and veneer over top of it. It's really not that big of a deal. Plus with the panel only being 11 inches wide, that's really not that wide. So cherry tangential movement around 6%, I think it's 6.2%. So what is that? Let's do some quick math here. Um, 11 times 0 0.06 is 0.66. Did I just do, yeah. So a little over a half an inch from wet to dry. Well, and I'll get to this in a little bit, but that's a, that's a huge moisture swing. You know, that could be, you know, 80% or 60% down to 
bone dry, 0%. You're probably talking about your wood's acclimated around 7%. It might swing 2% either direction. So it's really not that much movement over the long run that a good veneer glue can't um, account for that and, and not cause you problems. Where you might run into problems is the opposite direction using a shop sawn veneer that is thick enough to resist. And then it could split. Um, or it could cause buckling or something like that because the veneer itself is trying to pull one way or another. But that's really only in a cross-grain situation because if you are aligning your, your, your movement with the veneer and the substrate, you're going to be okay because they're essentially going to be moving in concert with one another. That's what I should have said originally. It's not even so much the veneer glue. It's the fact that if the wood movement, if the, the wood movement is aligned, you know, it's the same way as gluing long grain to long grain. It's super strong, but it also movement is in harmony. So Michael wants to know about this whole idea of acclimating the shop. He says, I've always heard that you should let lumber acclimate to your shop. Most of the furniture I make um, is for my climate-controlled house, though. While my shop is an uninsulated garage, I live in the Baltimore area, so I'm sure you're quite familiar with our weather. It seems that if my lumber is destined to live in my house, I should let it acclimate to my house rather than my shop. Otherwise, I may see some movement once the finished furniture moves inside. Do you agree? Uh, likewise, do you think it's necessary to move the unfinished pieces back inside when I'm done on them for the day as I'd overkill? Um, Michael, I agree. You are going to see some movement once the furniture is moved inside. And I've said this before, wood moves. Get over it. It's always going to move. There is no secret to allow you to build it in one place to prevent movement. If you let it acclimate to your shop, um, it's not going to move while you build it. It's still going to move while you build it. And yes, it's going to move when you change the, the relative um, humidity when you move it into the house. Is it that big of a movement? No. You know, the delta from your uninsulated shop to inside your house is not that big of a deal. Even if it is, you build to account for wood movement. You never build to ignore wood movement. You can, but things are going to happen. Bad stuff's going to happen. So, you know... I, again, this goes back to, I don't really think there needs to be this huge amount of period that you let something acclimate to a shop unless you're dealing with wet wood. And even then, I've talked about that in the past, you don't have to wait that long. Start building. While you're building, that wood is going to acclimate to the shop. In fact, it's going to acclimate to your shop a hell of a lot faster once you start cross-cutting it and thickness planing and exposing fresh fibers and releasing moisture into it. It's going to acclimate a hell of a lot faster than just sitting there. Moreover, if you let it sit there and acclimate and then you cross cut it and you thickness plane it, you're still gonna release fresh moisture and it's gonna have to acclimate some more. So why would I spend a bunch of time acclimating only to have it have to acclimate more once I actually start cutting into it? Start cutting into that sucker. Start using it. There's no reason to stop, to, to stop everything and wait for it to acclimate. But to the original point, yes, hell yes, it's going to move when you move from an uninsulated shop into a climate controlled home. But who cares? As long as you've built to account for that wood movement, there's nothing to worry about there. Um, we're, we're never going to find a perfect situation where I'm building in an area that is static and it's not going to move. You always, 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 always need to be building um, to account for wood movement. Jerome asks about doors and finish. Um, let's see. I live in Southeast Wisconsin. I've been working on replacing all the doors in my house with custom solid doors. This will ex include my exterior doors. Understanding that all wood moves, what is my best bet for finishing and sealing to provide the best results? Second, 
Um, I was at one point in my life a musician, and I have a marimba that I've played, which needs to have the bars retuned from time to time. I figured that since it's a percussion instrument that is struck with items to create a sound, this was what was creating the change in pitch over time. It never dawned on me it could be due in part also to seasonal movement, or perhaps completely. No, not perhaps, completely. The movement, the actual size and the change in that movement is what's changing the tune of your marimba. You know, the same thing, you talk acoustics and you hold that rubber band and you pluck it and it makes a sound and then you grab it halfway down, shortening that length of rubber band and changing essentially the, the oscillation, the frequency, it's changing that. You're changing the frequency of the sound when you when you strike that. Certainly there could be a minimal amount based upon what you're striking it with, you know, from a rubber mallet to a steel mallet to a wood mallet, but that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's going to change it, but it all has to do with seasonal movement in there. So... I had to throw that in because as a musician, I just like that. So the question is, um, what is my best bet for finishing and sealing to provide the best results for doors? First of all, I hate the word seal. Uh, I hear that all the time. I want to seal this wood. This goes back to that epoxy question. There is no such thing as sealing the wood. I shouldn't say there's no such thing, but commercially available, there's no such thing. No matter what finish you put on it, you are not sealing it there is still going to be moisture exchange through the wood. So yes, the wood is going to move. The finish is just going to slow it down and ameliorate any movement over shorter terms. So you need to be looking, I think what I would focus on more than anything is, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Maintenance. Maintenance. For your exterior doors, maintenance is going to be an issue. For your interior doors, no. It's going to be just like building a piece of furniture. You know, unless you specifically want to maintain it, you're going to use a, a less durable finish. There's no reason to think about that interior door any differently than any piece of furniture that you're using. Um, it is going to expand and contract, but doors especially are built to compensate for expansion and contraction so that the overall size in the door jam doesn't change. That's why we do frame and panel construction and we use things like quartered and rift material. Um, many modern doors are actually... Um, um, composites. They are not composites. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, manufactured where you, you laminated, laminated, good Lord, where you're taking, maybe you could be solid wood throughout, but you're laminating shorter solid pieces and then skinning it with a thicker veneer, like a three sixteenths veneer or something over top of it. And you're actually creating kind of like a piece of plywood that's going to move less overall. That's the movement concern, staying inside the door jam and not sticking on you over time. The finish, all the finish is going to do is just help retard that movement, um, it's not going to prevent it, and that movement again is going to happen seasonally. It's just going to happen slower. Exterior, again, same situation. The wood is going, going to move, and it may move more radically because you've got bright sun on your door through half the day and shade and darkness the rest of the time. What, I can, my, what I'm concerned about is the elements are going to eat that finish. I don't care what finish it is. The elements are going to eat it, so you're going to have to refinish it at some point. For me, I want to go the path of least resistance and not use a film finish, a varnish that's going to have to be stripped away. Um, the The varnish may provide more of a vapor barrier than, than a penetrating finish, but in the end, as long as it's built to account for movement, it shouldn't really matter. So think about maintenance more than wood movement. Well, you always want to think about wood movement, but the finish is not really going to play into this. It's a maintenance issue more than anything else. So Mark wants to know, why is wood anisotropic? 
well, those are my words, but um, I want to learn the mechanisms for why wood movement is different radially versus tangentially. Um, and that's really what wood is. Uh, if wood moved equally in all directions, it would be isotropic. It doesn't, so it is anisotropic. There's your, your Scrabble, a winning word for the day. Um, why does it move differently radially versus tangentially? Well, because radially, the medullary rays play a larger um, role in things. Moreover, as wood, wood expands and contracts because the wood fibers swell, they don't swell along their lengths. Um, you can't really grab a, grab a, a straw broom or a, just a straw. Go to McDonald's and get a straw. And you can squeeze it across its width, right? You can crush that air out of the middle and squeeze the straw. But if you try to pull it along its length and stretch it along its length or compress it along its length, you really can't. You know, it's, it's pretty much static in that direction. The wood fiber is going to be the same way. It's going to have that air in the middle, that moisture in the middle, and as the moisture increases, it's going to swell and it can cause that straw to stretch and get fatter. But it's not going to stretch along its length and get longer. A quartered piece now has those fibers running across the thickness. And those are the areas that aren't really gonna move all that much. But more importantly, the medullary rays, which if you look at the a log, a cross section of a tree, a round cross section, the medullary rays are the spokes on that wheel. They are the studs in the wall. They are the bones in the human body. They are the structure that is really not moving, mainly because it's packed with tree waste. That's rigid. And that rigidity, when used, that rigidity in that plane does not prevent the wood from moving, but it moves dramatically less than the tangential, than along the growth rings. And that's really what we're talking about is um, that added structure, that added rigidity in that particular geometric plane is what's causing it to move differently in one plane versus the other. The rigidity in the tangential direction, those medullary rays are now, um, that's their their flexible dimension, uh, just like uh, the, the straw can be squeezed across its thickness but not pulled along its length. That's really what we're talking about. It's all about the medullary rays and their structure there, which is also why you will see in softwoods where the tangential versus radial difference is not quite as much as you would see in hardwoods where you've got a much stronger ray structure and, by the way, pores in a hardwood that do not exist in a softwood. The tracheids are going to be slightly different structure that will make them slightly more isotropic than your typical hardwood. Scott has a question about walnut as it relates to moisture content in air-dried material. He says, I have some air-dried walnut in my basement and I want to use it to build a chair. It's fairly thick, 6, 8, and 12 quarter. Using my moisture meter, I've been monitoring it impatiently, waiting and waiting and waiting. It dropped pretty quickly to about 12%, but as expected, it has really slowed down now. I've got a small dehumidifier next to the stack, but it still doesn't want to shed that last 4%. Measured wood in my living space is 8%. So my question is, how picky should I be? Can I just get started on this project knowing it might move a little bit? But how much will walnut really move with 4% and a 3-inch wide piece? Or am I being too impatient and I just need to keep waiting? If it helps, I'm in central New York where moisture content in a living space will fluctuate between 8% in the winter and 14% in the summer. Um, Scott, start building. I think I've kind of already touched on this in a couple of different ways, but um, when you look at the movement charts uh, and like the wood database and things like that, those are measured from wet to dry. Now, 
what wet to dry means will actually vary from one lab to another, and that can actually be open to interpretation, but it's over a very large delta in moisture. A 4% delta in moisture is going to move so little. But here again, why would you build for something to move less than something to move more? Plan for it to move a lot, and you'll be okay. There's no reason to think, oh, well, this hasn't moved all the way. You're at 12%. You are ready to go to work, my friend. There's no reason why you have to worry too much about movement. What people are really worried about is the board going to cup. Um, that's That really doesn't have much to do with joinery. Uh, boards can cup, certainly they can twist, but depending on how you're using them, how they're joining one another, what the structure is underneath it, it may not matter. Or it may matter, but you know, wood's always going to move. So you just always build to compensate for that and you really just don't need to worry about it. The long story short, the easy to answer all these questions is just start building. This whole idea of sitting around and waiting for lumber to come to this perfect equilibrium and therefore all my problems will be solved is ridiculous because the minute you start cutting into it, the minute you start exposing fresh fibers, the moisture has changed again and technically the wood will start moving again. The wood is never going to stop moving. So just stop worrying about it and do all of your building to compensate for it. Whew, we've got a lot of questions here. I wonder if I can get through all of these in one show. We are cooking along here, but man, you guys wrote a lot of questions. Um, let's see. Um, wood movement over time. Uh, Wit had asked about that. Um, does freshly assembled poplar trim swell more in high humidity in the first year and then progressively swell less each successive year? So we talked about this a little bit with the guitars. The older wood is going to move less and less, but it's also going to be highly dependent upon species. Poplar is one that's really not going to vary that much. You know, 100-year-old poplar may move less because the resins and the things in there will have hardened, but you're probably not going to see really any difference, certainly from one year, from the first year to the second year or the first year to the 20th year. Poplar is a species that's not, you know, hugely resinous in nature. You're really not going to see an issue. Technically, though, the older it is, the longer it's been sitting there, the longer it's been in place, the memory, quote-unquote, memory that develops from it being sitting in the same place and nailed into place for however long will help it be more stable. Um, but in the end, the movement is not going to move much at all, especially when you're talking about a trim piece, which is such a small, narrow piece, not much movement at all there. Bill wonders about predicting movement. I touched on this briefly, but basically um, I can look at, Bill's saying, I can look at tangential shrink shrinkage on a species chart and say it changes 8%. I understand correctly um, this represents wet to dry. However, if I'm building a piece of furniture, I don't expect it to go from wet to dry, but I might expect it to move between 8 to 10, 8, 8 to 10% moisture content. To determine how much dimensional change I'm thinking, I would look at the shrinkage curve of the species and see how much it changes between 8 and 10%. Am I even close to thinking about this correctly? Um, you're close, but I think you're overthinking it. If you say this species has a tangential movement of 8%, what is... And, and that 8% would be really a maximum amount. So here again, more than likely it's going to move less than 8%. But if I build for it to move 8%, then I'm okay. If it moves 6%, that's okay. I counted for 8%. If it moves 4%, I'm even better because I counted for 8%. The fact is that movement is not so dramatic that say, you know, I put a panel inside a frame and panel door and... Um, 
I've accounted for it to move 8%, but only moved 4%. It's not like that movement difference is so big that suddenly that panel is going to have a gap between this dial and the panel. Um, it's really not that big of a difference. So always plan for the maximum amount and don't worry about you know, the charts and saying, okay, well, it's technically only going to move 2%. There are calculators out there that will do this. But when you look at and you figure out what that movement is for, for 2%, and just use nice round numbers, let's say it moves a quarter inch if it moves 2%. And at its maximum, you know, of 8% movement, it's going to move three-eighths of an inch. It's not that huge of a difference between those two numbers that you can't build to allow for that movement. So again, why would you build it for less movement? Don't build it for maximum movement, allow that maximum movement, and you will always be covered. That's what those species charts are telling you is this is the maximum number you can expect it to move. So build for that. And and really, when you do the math and you figure it out, you realize that the difference between that maximum movement and whatever movement you may have calculated based upon a growth chart, you know, in this lunar cycle is not that different. It's really not that big of a difference. Um, Scott has a question about figure. Um, he says, does figured wood or burl move more significantly different than plain grain wood of the same species? Um, I would say yes. I would say more unpredictably, not that it's going to move more or less. It's just because you can't really look at it and go, this is the radial plane or this is the tangential plane. You more often than not, well, figure is in grain, really. And in grain, when you're looking at in grain, you're looking at you know, the long fibers, which is negligible movement. So you may actually find it's not that figured wood or burl is going to be more, it's going to move less um, or be more stable. It just moves more unpredictably. Or more often than not, it may not appear to move at all because you've got so many competing vectors in there. You know, one fiber is moving up, the fiber next to it's moving to the left, the fiber next to that's moving down, the fiber on the left to that is moving some other direction, some other vector, that they almost cancel each other out. The same reason that the cross grain plies and plywood pretty much cancel each other out. There's equal force in all directions, so the whole thing stays relatively flat. So, you know, I don't want to go out on a limb and say, you know, figured wood's going to move less because it depends on the figured wood. Now, burl may end up moving less because it's just almost locked in place because of all that competing tension. Um, but he does have another kind of unrelated point, which is interesting. He said, pin makers that turn in a cold, unheated garage end up with pins that crack when they move the finished pin into the warmer house. How does the temperature difference cause this? So here again, temperature has somewhat to do with it, but it's all about relative humidity. And as I said earlier, the warmer air is, the more moisture it can hold. So that relative humidity number could be the same, but very different from one temperature to the other. The issue here, and this kind of sums up several different things we've talked about. When you turn a pin, you're turning that wood very, very thin. You think of like those slimline pins. You've got a seven millimeter bushing, you know, and the, the brass tube itself might be five millimeters. And you're left with this two millimeter thick cylinder of wood. So that's very, very thin. And the slightest shrinkage could cause it to crack very easily. Moreover, nine times out of 10, when you're gluing a pin blank to the brass tube, you're using CA glue, which is a very hard, very brittle glue. And it's not allowing that flex underneath so you can see that splitting happen. Um, 
I, you know, and I think where you're going to find this happen more often than not is in those slim line species. If you start turning the thicker pins that have like three eighths bushings and, and even eight mil, um, not eight mil, um, 10 mil, 12 mil bushings, you find that that cracking happens a lot less because the wood is thick enough to resist some of that. But, you know, the, the answer uh, is there's an instance where because you're turning it though so thin, you're taking it to such an extreme, um, you may want to give it some time to acclimate, you know, before you apply that finish, take it into the house and, and let it warm up or apply some heat and let that warm up, let the, the moisture level, uh, increase gradually and then apply a finish, which will essentially lock that moisture in. It won't lock it in because as I said, moisture will always exchange, but it's going to slow down because now you've put a vapor barrier over the moisture section and it's going to slow that moisture exchange down and cause uh, less of a cracking issue. Um, yeah, there really isn't another option other than CA glue just because we're moving along so fast. But if you chose a different glue with a little bit more flexibility to it and even a little bit more gap filling to it, you might be better off. But I doubt I'm going to change how I make pins and use anything but CA glue because I'm too impatient to wait for something else. Um, I think, ah, okay. I've got one more here. Oh no, I've got two more. <clears throat> uh, this is from Charlie. He says, um, I was recently ripping a four quarter by 30 white, in, white oak board into thinner strips to make a picture frame. The board was completely flat before I started cutting it, but soon after ripping the five inch wide board into four strips of equal width, I noticed one of them was starting to bow quite noticeably. Another one not as much as the first one, while the other two remained flat for the most part. I know bound tension in wood is a thing, so it wasn't too surprising, but my question is this. How possible is it to predict and possibly avoid such a thing? Are there certain grain patterns that are telltale signs of tension in the wood? Are some species more prone to tension than others? Um, yes. More spe some species are more prone to tension than others. I question whether or not this was a tension thing. You took a five-inch wide board and you cut it into four strips of equal width. width. So you're talking about what, one and a quarter inch wide strips there. It's pretty thin. Um, you are actually probably cutting across, if there is bound tension in the wood, you're cutting it apart enough that the tension is probably not playing any kind of issue. Any, any tension or compression that that board may have been under may have just nullified by the fact that you cut it into tiny little strips. You've snipped all those rubber bands. Um, what may be more important is what kind of grain pattern did you expose? That one board that bowed noticeably, was that right through the center of the board? Like was the cathedral on that section? And the other boards that barely moved at all might've been in the quartered flanking sections or the less movement rift section. If the whole board itself was cut on a sharper bias to the long axis of the tree, you're gonna find all kinds of competing grain patterns that just by cutting that board apart, not only are you maybe isolating a more movement prone grain pattern within that board, but you're reducing the actual beam strength of that board itself by cutting it into a narrow strip. So the real answer is you could predict it just by saying, if I cut this, this particular piece is going to come right out of the center of that board. You know, the most movement prone section, these two boards are going to be essentially quartered in nature because I'm cutting them off the flanking quartered sections. They're not going to move at all. 
the boards on the side may be where the grain is really start to flatten out and they're going to move more. Um, just by looking at the ingrain of that particular board and seeing where the rift sections are, how flat is that grain there, depending on, on the, the, the radius or the diameter of the tree itself, you can have tangential rings that run almost parallel to the face of the board, in which case that board will probably react pretty much the same from one edge to the other. But if you've got a board that was cut closer to the center of the tree and those growth rings are in tighter radii, the difference from that center section to that quarter section right next to it could be significant, especially once you release the, the beam strength by cutting it into a narrower piece. So I don't know whether, when, when you hear people talking about the tension that's released when you cut a board, oftentimes people are like, oh, this board was dried improperly. And there's no question that that is a result of an improperly dried board. But nine times out of 10, it's the movement that is allowed to occur just because you've cut the board into a narrower strip. You've removed a kerf out of the middle of that and released a bunch of fresh moisture and there's now not as much strength across its width or across the thickness of the board to hold it flat anymore. You've snipped any tension that could be in there because the boards are always under stress of some sort, right? Whether it's tension or compression, if you're an engineer, you really wanna differentiate those two, it's a stress. Um, all boards are under some kind of stress. It could be undue stress. It could just be normal stress. By cutting a board, you're cutting across those stress lines, so movement may occur. In that respect, there's no way to really predict it, but yeah, look at your growth rings at the end of the board, and you can start to predict what pieces may move depending on where those cut lines fall. Last question <clears throat> is on sheet goods. Um... This is from Jason. He said, plywood, for instance, has to move, right? It can't be completely immobile. MDF should move based on fiber swelling. There's a question mark there. Fiber swelling? How much does sheet goods move and at what scale do you worry about it? Um, I guess the follow-up question would be how thick a veneer becomes, how, 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 how thick a veneer can be before it becomes wood instead of a veneer or plywood. Uh, when it comes to movement purposes. So the issue with plywood, plywood does move, but because each one of those plies is moving in opposite directions, it tends to cancel each other out. What plywood does when it moves is cup. It's not really dimensionally changing width or length all that much. It's tending to cup, and that's more to a moisture, improper moisture differential, or not improper, but a differential. Instead of the plywood being assembled as a homogenous moisture content. That moisture content could be 12%, it could be 1%. But if it's 2% in the center of the ply and 1% on the edge, there is a differential there that can cause cupping. Um, veneers are nice and thin. The individual plies of a piece of plywood are nice and thin, that there is no reason why that ply cannot be 100% equal moisture content. I talk about this in my plywood episode. That's the quality control we're talking about. The more expensive plywoods have that quality control to ensure that every ply is at, you know, whatever the percentage is, 3%, and every square inch of that ply is at the same moisture content. So it's homogenous, so there is no differential there. And if there's no differential from one sheet to the next, the board's not gonna cup. But if there's a differential, because those forces, those movement forces are, are nullifying one another, the only solution is to cause a cup, not so much a width or length change. MDF, MDF will swell. If you dump water on that, that sucker will swell super fast. The issue with MDF, and kind of like this 
bound tension thing is because there's no long grain fibers anywhere in MDF, it's termite barf. I mean, it's tiny, tiny, tiny specks that are all glued together. And MDF ends up being more glue and resin than wood fiber. And the wood fibers themselves really don't exhibit any kind of wood movement characteristics because the wood fibers are so small. They're just not going to they're not going to team together and, and move tangentially. Now, OSB might exhibit more than MDF because the fibers in the OSB are, are larger. But here again, it's oriented strand board. So they're kind of sort of orienting all in the same direction. So you get a predictable movement there. But that just acts just like plywood. So sheet goods, it comes down to the competing forces or the fact that the individual fibers themselves have been chopped up so small that they really don't exert any appreciable amount of force. But don't lie to yourself that they're not going to swell. Dump some water in MDF and you will see that sucker swell and possibly delaminate very, very quickly. So yeah, um, to not overthink it, you just really don't need to worry about dimensional movement very much in sheet goods because of these competing forces or lack of forces due to chopped up termite barf. All right, folks, I think I think that covers it. I actually think I ended up skipping a few questions through my notes here because I realized that I kind of already answered that. So thank you so much to everybody who sent in wood movement questions. I hope you can see that while there are overarching kind of standards, the biggest thing is to think about it in individual context and always be thinking, am I count- accounting for wood movement? Am I only partially accounting for wood movement or accounting for the maximum amount of wood movement? There may be times when you can account for the maximum amount of wood movement. I don't want to be naive and say that you can always do that, but there's really no reason to, for lack of a better term, half-ass it. Why would you half-ass your joinery thinking, oh, it's only going to move a little bit, when you could slightly change your joinery, do a better job of making that joint to account for the full amount of wood movement and just ensure that you have a better piece over the long haul? So thank you to everybody who wrote in these questions. Um, you know, if there are follow-up questions, send them in. There's no reason why I can't talk about other stuff about wood movement in the future. So thank you everybody for listening. Thank you to all of my patrons who continue to support the show. Go buy some lumber.